0: Amen. We're going to dismiss our kiddos and let them head out for children's church. And so if all of them would make their way to the side here, we're going to send you all out to have a good time. Y'all go have a good, good time. If you brought your Bibles today, and I hope that you will each week, uh, we're going to be in Hebrews the end of chapter 5 today, so you can kind of look that up and get ready to go. I want you to imagine with me uh, you being a person maybe that um, all of your life has been judged by your performance, how well you do, how well you look, uh, how well you speak, uh, being a, a person that that's in a relationship with others, but only to the degree that you're able to perform, only to the degree that you're able to meet their needs and make them happy, and the minute that you don't, then you're set aside, discarded or ignored, and you've been trained, if you would, if that's the way you've had to live to to be at your best at all times. Uh, You get good at pretending that that you're good, And, and it may not even be a pretense anymore. It may just be that you're striving to be the best so that everybody else will be able to love you and accept you. And then imagine if that was the case in your life, meeting somebody that came and literally just loves you, right where you are, exactly the way you are, loved you and cared for you with no strings attached, that, that gave you an unconditional love, that, that just said, I love you and I would love it if we could love each other back. If you enter into that kind of relationship, it would be so fresh and so new and so just exhilarating to know that you don't have to perform, that you don't have to, to, to get it right every day, that you will be loved on your good days as well as your bad days. And, and that's, that's what happens when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, is that he comes and, and he pursues us. And he says, I know your past, and I know your story. I know everything about you, and I love you anyway. And I love you on your good days as well as on your bad days. But if you've been conditioned by society all of your life that, that you're loved when you perform, then it would be easy even in that relationship of unconditional love to want to revert back to that mode of doing in order to be loved. You would find yourself thinking that surely there's something I've got to do to show you that I love you, to show you that I'm worthy, to show you that, that I deserve your love. And, and so this is where the, the, the people, that the writer of Hebrews, this is where they live. They've been tied up in Judaism all their life, and it's a performance thing. You you perform well, and God will bless you. You do good, and we'll accept you. You follow the rules, and we'll let you live. You you mess up, and you're out the door. And then all of a sudden, they meet Jesus. And his love is unconditional. And man, they just eat that up for a little while. But here, they're finding themselves feeling the need to do something more. We've talked about this last few weeks, but about that, that pure grace... And then this grace plus something. And and in the middle of all that, they're they're struggling to go, man, surely I need to to do something to show God that I really love him. On on my bad bad days, I need to do something to make up for for my failure. And and they're sliding back toward this performance track. And the writer of Hebrews, from the very beginning of this book, has been calling them back to pure grace. In chapter 5, we... Saw a transition where he moved from 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 kind of presenting the negative side to the positive side of that and calling people back. And here in in chapter five, we we reach a point that, like I said earlier, has been one of the most debated and one of the most um, uh, divisive uh, type teachings in in the book of Hebrews. It's a it's a tough part. It's a difficult passage. It's been debated. Um, and what usually dictates how a person interprets this scripture is their beliefs that they bring to the passage. And I, wanna, I don't want to get too complicated this morning, but, but here's what we've got to be careful of. If I come to scripture with a certain set of beliefs and I just read scripture in order to prove what I already believe, then I will be tempted to twist scripture or to omit scripture or to add to scripture in order to, to build up what I think I already believe. And, and that's the danger. It's coming to Scripture with a, a, a set of beliefs that's already in place and then saying, now, this passage creates a difficulty for me, so I've got to find a way to explain it away in order to build up what I already believe. And I believe that many people do that when they come to difficult passages. Instead of just allowing the passage to speak and allowing the passage to, to fit in the context of the whole that it's written. Remember, this, this, book, of, this book of Hebrews is a letter written to a church, It would probably have been read in in one sitting, not that they would read it once and throw it away, but but this was a letter that the, the pastor of that church, of that congregation would have stood and said, hey, we have a letter here that we need to share with you this morning. And he would have started at the beginning and read that letter to his congregation. They they wouldn't do like we tend to do sometimes where you pick apart every single word and go, oh, well, what does this word mean? And back in the context, because they already understood the context. They already understood the Greek language. They already understood a lot of this meaning. And they also knew where they were at. They knew what they were struggling with. So this is a letter that's written as a pastor's heart calling his people back to something. And when we get here, it's going to be very important that we keep what he's saying in, in the context of the whole letter. In other words, I can't interpret this part separate from everything else that he's written in the letter that would contradict it. We can't do that. We also need to keep in mind who the audience is. And this is where, in, in my studies on this passage, that a lot of these commentators kind of talk out of both sides of their mouth. You know, At one point they're saying, oh, he's talking to believers. And then we get to this passage, oh, he's talking to unbelievers. Well, it, it's, it's either one or the other. He's writing to a church that's filled with believers, or he's writing to a lost world, calling them to salvation. But you, you don't see those, those things just switch in the, in the middle of a passage. And so I want us to keep in mind the, the context. I'm going to tell you this. There's, there's four basic interpretations that are offered for this passage in chapter 6 that we're going to work our way towards today. It's a passage that, that says, hey, if, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, you, you, you experience Christ in, in his fullness, and then you fall away, it's impossible for you to be restored. And so people will read those two verses, chapter 6, verses 4, 5, and 6, three verses, I guess, and say, okay, this is, this is, there's, there's three or four options here for what the writer is saying. The first option in these common interpretations is that the audience that he's addressing are Jewish people who have moved very close to salvation but haven't crossed the line. And so they've 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 gotten up there, they're they're getting involved in a church, they're getting involved in the religious scene, they're cleaning up their lives, they're 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 talking religious, but they haven't really begun a relationship with Jesus. They fall away and they're forever lost. That's the first interpretation. The second interpretation says that the author of Hebrews is just speaking hypothetically. What he's saying is this that that well, if it were possible for you to Taste and see that the Lord is good. If it was possible for you to come into a relationship with Christ and then for you to lose that salvation, then you would be eternally lost. And that would be the second. He was just presenting something that was hypothetical but not likely and not even really possible. But he does that to to warn the people. That would be the second interpretation. The third interpretation that is offered is that the audience was saved at one point. They came into a relationship with Jesus. They were saved. But then they fell back into sin, and God cut them off, and they were lost. And so they go from saved to lost. And what denominations that will teach this believe, and and what they teach is that you can be saved and then lost, and then saved again and then lost, and then saved again and then lost. And so there is no such thing as the security of the believer, no such thing as this eternal security that you're saved and forever saved but that depending upon your actions, depending on whether you're good or bad today, you can be saved or lost. There's a problem with those three interpretations, and I want to explore the the problems with those three before I move into the fourth, which is what I think is the, the best interpretation of this. So the first one says that the audience was just moving right up to the point, right up to the edge of salvation, but never crossed the line, and therefore they were lost, and they backslid, and they remain lost forever. The problem with the pretender the pretender interpretation is that the context and the language of everything we've read so far in Hebrews goes contrary to that. He's been writing to brothers in Christ, to, to, to those who are a part of the body of Christ. The, 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 the language that he uses speaks completely in an opposite direction. We've said from the very beginning that the writer of Hebrews is addressing Christians and believers who have tasted the grace of God, but now are tempted to go back to Judaism and start offering some sacrifices again he doesn 't change audiences here in the middle of his story. Uh, an, another thing that, that the language that he uses in this passage would would in the context would say that he 's not writing to unbelievers we 're going to see in our in our passage today that he 's going to say to them listen you 've become dull of hearing well, that means you used to not be as dull, but now you 've kind of become dull. You used to be Hearing the Lord, but now you're not listening to God anymore. He's going to say to them, you ought to be teachers by now. Why would you say to a lost person, you ought to be teaching the church by now. Would you want lost people teaching the church? He says, so the language that he uses here, he says, you know, you become dull of hearing. You ought to be teachers. He says, you're you're, you're needing to go back to milk instead of solid food. Why would he say that to somebody if they're not a believer yet? You wouldn't start a baby on steak. If these people weren't believers, he wouldn't say to them, hey, let's jump ahead to the steak. He'd say, let's get you back on milk and let's bring you into the family of God. That's not the language, though, that he uses. He's going to say in today's passage why, you know, that we need to leave behind the foundational, the basic truths and move on to maturity. If this person's not a believer that he's addressing, why would he say leave behind the basics of salvation if they haven't already established the basics of salvation? And then he begins in the latter part of this passage we'll look at today to say to the audience, you guys have tasted, you've experienced, you have encountered the living Christ. you've, You've got the Spirit of God that's been working in you. And you wouldn't say those things of a lost person. So none of the language, none of the context would lend itself to this belief that they had moved themselves right up to the edge but have never crossed over the context, the language, the wording that he uses, the descriptive phrases in this passage wouldn't lead us to that kind of an understanding. So what about the second view, the hypothetical view? Well, he's going to, he's going to just present a hypothetical case. If you could, then, well, you know, you'd be in trouble. If you could lose your salvation, if you were saved and you could lose it, then you would forever be lost. Why would he make an empty threat Is that just to manipulate his audience, to get them to do something that he wants them to do? That's not godly. That wouldn't be spirit-inspired. The hypothetical view is is a view that's easy to dismiss this idea that you could be saved and then lost, if that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. It's a way to dismiss that. Well, he wasn't really being serious. He was just being hypothetical. But what we're going to see is in in chapter 5, verse 10, where we left off last week, he talks about this this uh, priesthood of Christ its a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He comes back at the end of today's passage in the beginning of, of chapter 7 next week and, and picks right back up on Melchizedek. So this is a kind of a parenthesis that he's put in the middle. Why would he stop this discussion of Christ's high priestlyhood, throw in a hypothetical manipulative claim, and then go right back to the priesthood? That doesn't make any sense. So the hypothetical argument doesn't make theological sense. And then the third option that, we, that I mentioned is this, this idea that you could be saved and then lost. And, and that is taught today in, in many churches. It's taught that you can lose your salvation, that you can walk away from Jesus, but they will also come back then and just teach part of this passage. They say, well, you could be saved and then lost, but they don't teach the whole passage which says if that's the case then you're forever lost, and you can never be restored to repentance. So in order to be true to Scripture and to hold that idea that you could be saved and then lost, you would have to say you could be saved and then lost, but then you are forever lost and never again brought back to repentance. Those are the three views that are out there. There's a fourth view that's out there that I think fits even better. Now, I've got to tell you this, just to be transparent. I've held two of the three views I just described to you in my lifetime. As I have come to Christ and began to study God's word and gone, what in the world is the writer of Hebrews saying? I've held two of those three views. I've held the view that, well, maybe they weren't Christians. Maybe they just never were believers. And I've held the view, well, he was just throwing out a, an example, a, a hypothetical. So when I when I knock those, those views down, I'm, I'm really saying that what I've held was not true, was not accurate. I've come to understand a little bit better, maybe. And I don't say that arrogant, like I've got this knowledge over everybody else that would see it different than me. But I want to present to you a fourth view that I think is, is fits the context, it fits the language, it fits what I think the writer of Hebrews is trying to do, and it also fits why he would stop the discussion of the priesthood, inject this, and then pick back up on the priesthood story after this. So let's look at the passage and see what he has to say, and maybe some of what I've just described will begin to make more sense to you. So in chapter 5, verse 11, he says, about this we have much to say. So, when you read something like that, you got to go, okay, about what? What's he talking about? About this, we have much to say. About what? Well, he's just talked about the order of Melchizedek. He's going to come back to that in a little while uh, at the beginning of chapter seven. So, what he's going to say is hey, in, in, in this, this deal about Melchizedek, I've got a lot more I want to say to you. But here's the problem you've become dull of hearing. It's hard to explain. Melchizedek is is an Old Testament figure that was uh, interjected into Abraham's life. We've got two places in the Old Testament that speak about him for about one or two verses each, and that's it. Nothing more is heard. And so there's a lot that needs to be unpacked and a lot that needs to be said about Melchizedek, but he says, before I go into that, I need to address something else. Here's the problem. I want to talk to you about something deep, something rich about the... Priesthood of Christ about all the work that Christ did on our behalf, which will help bolster your faith and your trust in what he's done so that you're not tempted to go back to Judaism. I, I want to get there. But before I get there, we, we've got to address something. And he says, and here's what we've got to address. You have become dull of hearing. Your, your ears are not tuned to the Lord. You're not listening to what God is saying. One of the reasons that you're drifting, one of the reasons you're tempted to go back to Judaism is that you haven't heard, you haven't really grasped this message of true grace. It's it's there, and, and you may can repeat some of the doctrinal points, but but you haven't let it sink in. You've become dull of hearing. And in that context, then, he says, here's how it happened. For For through... For for though by this time, so in other words, you've had time to mature in Christ. You've had time to learn about grace. You've had time to be grounded in grace. and, 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 And though by this time you ought to be teachers, you still need someone to teach you again the basic oracles, principles, and oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So here's what he's saying. I want to go deeper. I want to unpack this story of Melchizedek because it's so rich. It's an Old Testament picture that brings us to the New Testament person of Jesus. But before I can take you there, we, we need, to, we need to, to, to talk about this. Your, your, your hearing has become dull. Your hearts have become unresponsive. If you remember back in chapters 3 and 4... He talks to them about, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. Do not turn away. Do not rebel as they did in the Old Testament. He keeps drawing them back to that story of the Old Testament saints when they got right up to the edge of the promised land. And God says, go possess the land. They sent the spies. The spies came back, gave a report and said, man, the fruit is great. The land is incredible. It's flowing with milk and honey. But we're no match for those guys. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. And the people turned back from God and said, okay, God, we're going to stay put. And God says, I've given you the land. I've made you this promise. I, I've delivered you to this place. Cross over and take it. And the people says, we're not going to do it. And the only two people that said that they could and that they should was, was Caleb and Joshua. And God says to them, and this is, this is critical to this passage, God says to them, you guys turn back to the desert where you will die now they were still god's children and god still continued to feed them day after day after day he continued to meet their needs their their, their feet didn't even outgrow their shoes god continued to care for them and he continued to do that but that generation that doubted and pulled back from god died in the wilderness never ever experiencing the full promise that god had made to them It was because of their rebellion and their hard hearts. He's tying that in now to this passage. He's saying, look, here's the danger. Your hearts are becoming dull. You're you're not listening. God is speaking and God's revealing his grace and God's calling you to this incredible love and this grace that he's giving you, but your hearts have become dull of hearing. And, and, And you should be maturing and you should be growing in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, but you're not. You ought to be teaching others about the grace of God. But you know what? we need to take you back to preschool and start all over because something, something hadn't clicked. Something hasn't fit. You're, you're not catching this, this fullness of grace. So while you ought to be teaching others, we need to take you back to preschool, he says, and teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. Like a baby, we need to get you back on milk And start this process over. Not solid food. You're not ready for solid food. And then he says this, for everyone who lives on milk. And this is how he's describing these people. You're unskilled or immature is another way to say that. In the works of righteousness, in the word of righteousness. Since he's a child. In other words, there's a reason we start children on milk they don't have teeth. Their digestive system can't handle that. We gradually introduce little foods. We, we introduce milk, and then we introduce these, these real soft things, and, and then we eventually get to the point that teeth come in, and they're able to chomp and chew on steak. But he says, you guys are not ready for that. You, you, are, you are unskilled in, in digesting these deeper truths. And before I go on and talk about Melchizedek and Jesus being your perfect high priest, we we need to open your heart back up to the truth of God's word. So he's calling them to repentance. He's calling them to listen and to come back to God so that their hearts are open and so that the truth that he's about to lay out there for them can really take root and grow in their lives and it will transform them forever. So he's calling them to repentance. He's saying right now you're like children who need to go back to the bottle. He says solid food. What I want to give you is for the mature. It's for those who have their powers of discernment trained. Well, th- these guys obviously didn't have their, their power of discernment <laughs> trained because they're, they're not able to just understand that grace is enough. They're wanting to supplement grace with their work, supplement grace by going back into a, a system of, of, of prescribed rituals that they have to go through. And he's saying what's happened is you're so immature that you're being led back into Judaism and all the traps of that. When that's no longer needed, it's no longer necessary. So even your behavior, even this temptation to go back to that, proves that you are not mature yet, you're not ready. And we want to change that. So he says, look, you you need your power of discernment trained by constant practice in order to distinguish good from evil. Here's what he's saying. This is a process. It's not something that's instant. It's not just that you've got saved and now you know it all. The reason we gather together and we worship, the reason we have our, our personal quiet times is because we don't come here knowing it all. We don't get saved and just know it all. There is a process of growth and discipleship and sanctification that has to take place. And, and what he's going to focus on here is the sanctification of these believers, not the salvation of unbelievers. And that's going to be critical to understand when we get to this difficult passage in just a couple of verses. He is talking about sanctification. The process of growing more and more in the grace of the Lord, in growing up to be a disciple of Christ, in producing fruit in our lives, that's what he's addressing here at this part of the book of Hebrews. He's not calling them and saying, hey, you're almost saved, but you just need to get saved. That's not the call. The call is you're a believer, but you're just not growing. We we need to figure out why you're not growing. If you had a child... And and that child's reached three or four years old and is still the same size as a newborn. Still on the same level as a newborn, you would say, something's not right. What's wrong? And you would take that child to a doctor. You would take that child to somebody that was a specialist that could begin to look at that child and begin to understand why they're not growing as they ought to be growing. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to do. He's saying, let's take a look at why you're not growing, why you're still immature, why you still need to suck on a bottle instead of eating a steak. Let's, let's ask the question, why? And he says, part of it is that you have become dull of hearing. You've, you've turned your ear away from the Lord. And you're never going to grow and you're never going to understand those, those truths, the deeper truths of God's word. So here in chapter 6 now, he begins to call them to something more. Chapter six, verse one, he says, therefore, because you're still a baby, because we've laid these foundational truths and and, and you're born, you're you're, you're alive spiritually, but here's what we got to do. Here's the goal of discipleship. Let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity. Now you read that and you go, oh, wow, is he calling them to abandon everything they've already learned? Not at all. I want you to picture building a skyscraper, okay? And if I'm the builder of a skyscraper, we're going to lay the foundation, and we're going to get that foundation set, and it's going to be good, and it's going to be solid. But if every day I show up on the job site, and I just walk around the foundation, and admire the foundation, and go, wow, this is a great foundation, man. This thing could hold a 50-story building. This, this, is, this is awesome. And I never got around a building. You'd think I was a fool. And I would be. To set that big of a foundation in place and never build anything on it, And here's what he's saying, let's leave the ground level and let's go up. Let's leave this this foundational just gawking and let's build something. Let's build your life upon the foundation that Christ has laid. Paul uses that same terminology in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 about that Jesus Christ laid a foundation and other expert builders are coming and building upon it. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. He's saying we need to to not leave behind, not like discard the elementary facts, but we need to build upon it. We need to build up, not abandon the doctrines of Christ. And if we do that, then we can go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. These are some things that, that they had been taught. And he says, let's, let's, I, they, they, they had to be Baptist. Let's meet, and, and, and we're going to discuss and cuss, cuss and discuss. Let's just do it over and over and over again. He's saying, guys, Listen. These things are in place. Let's stop rehashing what's already in place. And let's move on to some meat. I want to talk to you about Jesus being your high priest. I want to talk to you about Jesus going into the Holy of Holies with his blood and sprinkling that and satisfying the the wrath of God, satisfying every demand that God made. I want to talk to you about that. but, But we're still back here talking about basic stuff. We need to move on. We need to grow up in our faith. Let's don't just try to lay another foundation. Let's don't just try to walk the foundation again and go, wow, this, this looks really good. Let's don't do that. And so he talks about six things. And, and there are really three sets of two that, that he does. And, and watch how he lays this out. He says, Let, let's don't lay again a foundation of repentance from dead works, from our old sin life, and faith toward God. So it's repentance and faith. Oh, man, that's what takes place at salvation. He's talking about their past. And then he moves on, he says, in instructions about washings and the laying on of hands. Well, in in this passage, when he talks about washings, it's literally the word baptizo that we get baptized from. And so some translations will say, let's stop talking about just baptism and and the laying on of hands. This this laying on of hands and and, and baptism kind of go together, and they're talking about what God's doing in a person's life right now. And then he talks about the future, this, this idea of the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment that waits All of us in the future. So he's talking about past, present, and future. But some some commentators will say, well, here here he's talking about Old Testament practices. And other commentators say, no, he's talking about New Testament stuff. And I think he may be talking about both. I mean, he he doesn't make it a a, a clear point, so he could be talking about both of these. He he could be talking about this this foundation of repentance. Remember when John the Baptist came to lay the groundwork for Jesus? What did John call people to? Repentance. But that was not yet salvation. They needed to repent of their sin, but they needed to put their faith toward Jesus. That could be an Old Testament concept. It's also a New Testament concept. He's talking about washings and the laying on of hands. These are two things that would have sparked a a light bulb to come on in the minds of Jews because Jews were really good about washing. You had to wash before you eat. You got to wash before you do. You got to, the priests had to wash before he offered sacrifices. You had to wash, 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 wash. There was all kinds of washings. John called them to a washing called baptism where he'd put them under the water and, and, and raise them back up. It was, it was this washing, this, this, this stuff that they had to do. In fact, you remember where Jesus was walking with the disciples through the grain field. And, and the Pharisees watch and, and, and the guys are eating and they're going, hey, your, your guys don't wash before they eat. We're Jews. We always wash before we eat. And Jesus likes not what enters the mouth that defiles a man. It's what comes out of the heart that defiles a man. Jews were big on washings. They were also big on the laying on of hands. When you bring your sacrifice to the priest, you know what you would do? You bring that lamb before the priest, and you know what they make you do? Make you lay your hands on that, on that, on that animal. You know why? It was a picture of your sins being transferred from you onto that lamb. Laying on of hands. Old Testament concept, yeah. Is it also a New Testament concept? Absolutely. Baptism. I am identifying myself with Christ. I am saying that, that, that the past is gone and that, that everything is brand new. I'm identifying with Jesus Christ. Baptism. Washing. doesn't wash away my sin. It's a picture of the washing of my sin. The laying on of hands is this transference of something to someone else. We see in the New Testament all the time people praying for one another, that they would lay their hands on another. It's not that this power would go through you. It's nothing mystical. It's this idea that there's something there. And guess what? When you became a believer, guess who laid his hands on you? Jesus did. And he did not let go. You are in his hand. He has laid his hands on you. He is praying for you. He is interceding right now on our behalf. What about the resurrection and eternal judgment? Old Testament didn't talk much about the resurrection. They didn't really understand much about the resurrection. Jesus comes and all of a sudden starts talking a lot about the resurrection. And Jesus comes and and helps us to understand the resurrection. And so while they had an an idea in the Old Testament and a hope that there would be a resurrection one day, there there were those that, that didn't believe in the resurrection or certainly didn't understand the resurrection. And their idea of judgment in the Old Testament was terrible. It's this wrath of God that's going to come down and judge the sinners and judge you for what you've done wrong. And apart from the grace of God that came through Jesus, that would have been the case. We would all live our life to the best of our ability, stand before God, and man, we would be in trouble. But you get to the New Testament. And all of a sudden, Jesus is resurrected. And he's called the firstborn from the dead, meaning he's not the last one, he's the first one. And like he was resurrected, so we will be resurrected. And and then all of a sudden, the judgment in the New Testament goes from being this this judgment of, uh, of wrath to this throne room of grace. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, whether you're still working the Jewish mindset or whether you've already moved over to the Christian mindset, I want you to understand, when Jesus came, everything changed. When Jesus came, everything has begun to change and we need to move beyond those kind of things and let's move on to something even grander than that. And then he says something and I think this verse gets overlooked. I know I have overlooked it probably my whole life but I think it may be the key that holds this whole thing together. And this we will do if God permits. I'm calling you to a fuller life. I'm calling you to a more mature life. I'm calling you to go forward in your walk with God. And then he says, and this will do if God permits. Who? What? Why wouldn't God permit that? Let's go back in our minds to the story of the children of Israel at the edge of of the promised land. They've got to cross the Jordan River and and inhabit the land, right? Numbers chapter 13, chapter 14 is the story of them reaching the edge of the promised land. Moses is ready for them to cross over. They send the spies. The spies look at the land, say, it's great, but we can't do it. And Joshua and Caleb begged the people, have faith in God. God's promised it to us. It's not our strength. It's God. He's he's brought us this whole way. He'll take us on in. It looks impossible, but it's not. It's not. And the people turn back. And God says, enough. All the way since we left Egypt, till this point right here on the edge of the promised land, You guys have rebelled, you have grumbled, you have turned back, I've been patient with you all the way to this point. I have I have shown you the power of God through the plagues, through the deliverance, through the crossing of the Red Sea. I've done it all. There's nothing left for me to do. I've given you manna, I've given you quail, I've fed you out of of that, I've given you water out of rocks, I've done everything. I've clothed you, I've cared for you, I've protected you, I've led you. And you're not gonna trust me. And God says to them, you guys will die in your disbelief. Back to the desert. Guess what the people did the next morning? Oh, we're, we're sorry, God. Okay, we're ready to go. Look, okay, one more chance, God. We're ready. We're, we're ready. We're ready. We're going to go, Moses. We're, we're, we're going in. <laughs> Jesus said we could do it. We're, we're going we're to go. And Moses says, you better not go. Because now for you to go would be disobedience. You've disobeyed all the way through, and now you're ready to disobey again. When God said go, you said no. And when God says no, now you say go. And God had enough. I've given you everything you need to be able to trust me to finish this deal and to enter my rest, and you would not do it. Die in your unbelief. Now, they were still his. They were still his people. And for the next 40 years, they wandered around that wilderness, and God took care of them. But they never got to enter God's rest. And that's what chapter 3 and chapter 4 has been all about in this Hebrews passage. They hardened their hearts. They rebelled against me. And I said to them, you will never enter my rest. God reached the limit, if you would. And he says, you want to remain in control? You remain in the desert. So what does that have to do with this passage? Here's what I think the writer of Hebrews is trying to say. And this is why I think this verse is so critical. God has saved you. He has given you of his spirit. He has done all these things that we're fixing to read about. And if you are content to just remain mature and suck on your thumb, there's going to come a day where God's going to say, just suck on your thumb. And you'll never grow. You'll never produce fruit. You'll never become a mature believer. You'll never go on with the Lord and grow up in your faith and do all that God had planned and promised that you could do as his child. I think that's what he's trying to say here. Not that you're going to lose yourself salvation. But you know what? There there comes a point in our life where God gives us everything we need to be able to mature and to grow in him and to walk with us day by day, giving us his spirit and allowing his spirit to help us to grow. But if we grow hard-hearted, we grow dull of hearing, and we say, you know what, Lord? I'm happy right where I'm saved, and I'm going to go to heaven, and I'm happy. Then God says, all right. All right. If that's all you want, that's all you get. I think that's what he's saying here. And that leads into this difficult passage. Look what he says. This we will do if God permits. But verse 4. Here's why this is so important. It is impossible. In a little while he's going to say it's impossible for God to lie. It's the same word. Same thing. So some people say, oh, he's not saying it's impossible. He's just saying it's unlikely. No. Because you have to interpret that and the other one the same way when you do Bible study. So is it unlikely that God's going to lie? Is it improbable that God's going to lie? Or is it impossible that God's going to lie? It's impossible. So he's saying here it's impossible. Watch this. Impossible. And then comes this clause. Okay? So I'm going to help you break this down. It is impossible in the case of those. Now here's he's describing believers. Who have once been enlightened. They've been brought to the truth. Their eyes have been opened by the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the heavenly gift. That's the gift of grace. Grace. This is not an unbeliever he's talking about. They've once been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift of grace. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. How can you say that about an unbeliever? You can't. They have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. They've tasted the powers of the age to come. These are people who have once walked intimately with God and so here's what he's saying it is impossible okay for those who have walked intimately with God and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance does that mean if I'm saved in a backslide that I'm lost forever? Is that what the writer of Hebrews is saying here? If you've tasted the Lord is good, you've, you've come into a relationship with Jesus and then you blow it, you can't ever repent and you can't ever come back? No. No. Again, he's not talking about salvation. He's talking about sanctification, the process of growing in the Lord. Here's what he's trying to say. If if you taste that the Lord is good and and you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and then you just grow satisfied there and you say to God, I don't want to hear anymore, I don't want to know anymore, I'm not gonna go any farther, I'm happy right here. And you say, I'm I'm done, I'm I'm good. I've got my fire insurance, I got my life insurance, I'm 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 good. I don't wanna be radical, I don't wanna be religious, I don't wanna be I just I just wanna be a good person and I'll be okay. And you're satisfied at that level. Then you run the risk, spend the rest of your life right there at that level. There may come a day where God says to you, like He said to the children of Israel on the edge of the promised land, stay. You're right there. You're not going to go any farther. Why would we as believers who have tasted that the Lord is good ever be satisfied just to live a mediocre, average existence? I don't know. But if we are, then our wish may come true. And God may say, I've given you every advantage possible to grow. And yet, you heard my voice and you did not respond. I called you to repentance and you said, no thanks. I asked you to take another step with me and you said, nah, I'm good right where I'm at. This is a message for us. For, for those of us who know Jesus, for those of us who have a relationship with Jesus, for those of us who have already entered into this faith walk with Christ and we know, we know that we are saved. And yet we grow complacent. We grow dull of hearing. It's just another message. That we hear, we check the box, went to church, and we go about our business. And God said, if you are not careful, then that's where you'll stay. Because for the person who time after time after time after time after time says to God, no thanks, no thanks, no thanks, no thanks, I'm, I'm good, I'm happy, I'm satisfied. Comes a time where it might become impossible For you to be restored to repentance. Now, you may say, well, what if I decide I want to repent? Well, there's two kinds of repentance, isn't there? According to the New Testament, there's the godly sorrow and there is worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is what the children of Israel expressed when they reached the edge of the promised land and God says, All right, you don't want to go? Back to the desert. Oh, wait a minute, wait. We don't want to lose that land. Sorry. They were sorry over what they were losing, not sorry over offending and disbelieving God. Godly sorrow is a sorrow that comes in our lives when we fall short of God and we are brokenhearted that we have offended God, that we have hurt God, that we have disappointed God, or that we have have fallen short of what God wants us to, to be. That's a godly sorrow where we are truly repentant for our sin and for what it's cost us and what it's cost others. But it's not just, I'm sorry that I'm losing something. It's, Lord, I'm sorry that I have offended you. That's godly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, the scripture says, and to life. Worldly sorrow, I'm sorry that I'm losing something, leads to death. And scripture warns us about the two. There's been many a marriage where a problem has occurred And the spouse has said, I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again. And and the real test of whether that's godly sorrow or worldly sorrow is not what's said in that moment as much as the heart behind what's said. Is that person sorry that he's going to lose all his standing in the community? That he's going to lose half of his wealth to his wife, his ex-wife? That... He may not be able to be a leader in the church, or what, is that what he is sorry about, or is he sorry that he's offended God and he's hurt his spouse? You see, when we say no to God again and again and again and again, you know, what we're demonstrating, I'm not worried about offending God. I'm just worried about looking good and feeling good. And as long as everybody in the community thinks I'm still good, then I'm okay, God. I'll just stay right here. That's worldly sorrow. And after a while, worldly sorrow leads to death. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here. Not losing your salvation, but dying in the wilderness. Never fully maturing, never getting off the bottle, and living your whole life breastfeeding when God had so much more planned for you. He says what they're doing, middle of verse 6, is they're literally crucifying again the Son of God, To their own harm and holding him up to death. Most of the time, folks in that condition are saying, Lord, just will prove yourself to me one more time. It's like the people at the foot of the cross. Well, if you really are the Savior, come on down and then we'll believe. Come on down and we'll follow you then. Give us one more miracle, one more proof. held Jesus in contempt and he says when we say to God nah, not now not now maybe later maybe when I get ready when I finish sowing all my wild oats then I'll follow you well guess what comes after sowing your wild oats wild oats we're crazy to think we can plant one thing and grow another that doesn't happen well sometimes we plant stuff and weeds grow But most of the time, you you get what you plant, right? And he says, if you have a lifetime of just saying, no thanks, no thanks, no thanks, there may come a point where God just says, then stay right there. You say, well, what if I change my mind and I want to repent? You won't change your mind without God doing the work of convicting, without God giving you the grace to repent. And if God has washed his hands and said, all right, then you won't repent and you won't come. And so again, this comes back to the message of the writer of Hebrews who's saying, while there is still moments, while there is still opportunity, let us come back to God now. He said that all the way through chapter 3, 4, and 5. While while the opportunity still stands, let us come. We assume that we can just do it on our own terms whenever we want to. And scripture is saying here, that's not the case. And then he uses an illustration. In verse 7, he says this, "For, for, for... Land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it. So it's a picture of this this land being blessed with plenty of rain. And it produces a crop useful for those whose sake it was cultivated. That land receives a blessing from God. So in other words, here's these Jews that are now believers who have, who have been a part of the covenant promise. Now they, they've become a part of this new covenant that God's done. They've, they've tasted that the Lord is good. They've been uh, infilled with the Holy Spirit. They've gone through all these things he just described. He says, you're like a land that the water has just poured on you. And if you'll produce the fruit, there's great blessing. But here's a warning. But if that same land that God's poured out all these blessings upon, bears thorns and thistles. In other words, it just says, no, I'm going to do my own thing. It doesn't do what it was planted to do. Then it's worthless. It's near to being cursed. Again, there's that warning. You can cross the line and God will say, okay, you're mine, but you're going to be in the wilderness. You're not going to grow. And its end is to be burned up. Burned up? Is he talking about hell? I don't think so. Not at all. We go back to the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul has talked about laying the foundation and building upon it. And he says, and that's the story where he says, and, and, and some will build with wood, hay, and stubble, and others with, with gold and silver and precious stones. And then it's going to be tested by fire. And then he says this at the end of that. He says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through the fire. Shannon, you guys had a house fire. Made it out with your life, but not much less, not much, much more. You can relate to that kind of a passage where you say, you know what? We're thankful that we got out. We didn't take much with us. And there will be believers at the end of time that will be safe and secure because of the grace of God and only because of the grace of God. And they're going to stand before the Lord and have nothing to offer to the Lord, nothing to show for their life because they kept sucking on a bottle, satisfied that they were okay. And the writer of Hebrews says, before we can move on to deeper things, we've got to do that real quick. He comes back now to encourage them real quick at the end of this. He says, though we speak in this way, in other words, I'm I'm warning you and I'm encouraging you, I'm exhorting you but even as I do that, I'm convinced in your case, I feel better, we we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So he's saying, there's still hope for you, there's still time for you. We, We are hopeful for things that belong to salvation. What belongs to salvation? Spiritual growth and spiritual fruit. And he says, look, God's not unjust as overlook your, your work and the love that you've shown. These things that you've done in the past, God's got that. He understands that. He remembers that. It's not all lost. But don't forfeit what still lies ahead. He, he remembers your work and the love that you've shown for his name's sake in serving the saints. And, and, and you still do. But we desire each of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish. Remember he said at the very beginning, you're slow to hear. Now he's saying, because you're slow to hear, you're slow to respond. He says, we've got to start hearing again. We've got to let the gospel sink in. Because as the gospel sinks in, we can't stay still. As the gospel sinks in, we're going to be encouraged and spurred on by the grace of God to do even more than we've ever done before, to grow in the Lord, to serve in the Lord and it brings us a full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish, but you will be imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. And then he closes out this chapter by saying to the, to the listeners, he's saying, remember when God made the promise to Abraham? What, what made that promise secure? Was it Abraham and his performance? No, we know Abraham fell short. What, what made it secure was that it was built upon God's character and God's covenant. And so he says, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom he could swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and I'll multiply you. See, God's going to do it. And, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and, and in all their disputes an, an oath is the final for, for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly, in other words, to to give Abraham the assurance to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So there's his character and there's his covenant. So that by two unchangeable things, his character and his covenant, which is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, in other words, we've run to him, that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast To the hope that is set before us. Remember he talked about in the first few chapters about them drifting away. And he's saying now as you you begin to grow and you begin to produce fruit, guess what happens? We put down an anchor and we are anchored. Our hope is anchored in God's character and God's promise, God's covenant. And and, and it brings us strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that he set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus is gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And now he's gone full circle. Talked about Melchizedek. It's a warning to the church. I'm fixing to give you some deep truths that's not easy to understand. But before I can even throw it out there, I, 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 if it's going to stick to the wall, guys, then our hearts have got to be right. We've got to be repentant and eager and ready to respond to the truth that's about to be given to us. This is a call to repentance. It's about our growth and our discipleship, our sanctification. It's not about our salvation. But as believers in Christ, we ought to be able to build upon the elementary things and go farther and farther, higher and higher in our walk with the Lord. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is calling us to. He does so with a warning. That if we refuse, sooner or later, it will be too late. Sooner or later, our lives will be gone, either because we will no longer be here to change it, or God will say, fine, remain immature. I'll find somebody else. None of us, none of us come to church just to stay the same. It's not why we're here. If you wanted to stay the same, you wouldn't come sit through another service, spend another hour of your life. But guys, sometimes we don't recognize that we are just toddlers in the nursery when we could be so much more. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen guys, let's let's leave behind the toddler room and let's grow up and become adults. Let's be who God's created us to be. And then we will produce the fruit and receive the blessing that comes from God living in us and God working through us. Guys, I think this is a call for every one of us to go, where am I at? And is there that hunger and that thirst to go deeper with God? Or is that something in the past, a distant memory? Have I grown complacent where I'm at? Or am I really ready Just to go deeper and farther with God. And here's the thing. You can't do that on your own. The grace that the writer of Hebrews talks about is the same grace that's necessary for you and I to continue in this walk with the Lord. We are called to grow in the grace of the Lord. In 2 Peter chapter 3, and close with this. He says this. He says, um, let let me look that up real quick. 2 Peter chapter 3. It's not Second Peter, it's first Peter. I'm sorry. First Peter, he calls us to grow in grace. I got the wrong wrote down the wrong passage. To grow in the grace. Is that it? Okay. Since you're waiting for this. Maybe it is 2 Peter. I just can't find it. Okay. We're, we're here to be to be found diligent by him without spot or blemish at peace. Here we go. Next verse, Dalton, you'll fix me up here. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. In other words, God's been patient with us through salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also writes to you according to the wisdom given to him. And as he does this in all his letters, when he speaks of them in these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. <laughs> That's the easiest understatement. He says, but look, we don't need to be ignorant, unstable, and twist to their own destruction as, as other people do these scriptures. But look at the next verse. Therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawlessness in people who, and people and, and lose your own stability. But we are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever, or both now and to the end, uh, to the day of eternity. Amen. I can't even read. Got me, got me bum-fuzzled here. Here's the deal. We are to grow in grace. That's a lifelong pursuit, okay? I told you when I started this that I've held two, three now of these four views. You say, what's the deal with that? I'd like to think that I'm growing in grace. I could stick with what I first believed when I first became a believer. And if I thought that was accurate, I would. But over the years, God reveals more and more. And I like to think that's called growth. And that's what we do. And I'm not standing here today saying to you that I've got a corner on this market, that I've got it all figured out. But I tell you what, this makes a lot of sense in the context of this part of the book of Hebrews. God's calling his people to repent so that he can take them farther than they've ever dreamed they could go and do more in them and through them than ever possible. So maybe today you and I need to do some soul searching and ask the Lord, Lord, am am I complacent? Am I just satisfied to sit and to soak and to sour? Or am I really seeking to go deeper with you? If we want to go deeper, we're going to do it through grace, not through guilt, not through manipulation, but through grace as we encounter the Lord right where he is. And we watch him change us. So let's talk to God. Let's be honest with God about where we're at right now. And if you need to say, Lord, look, I, I don't want to wait another day to repent. I don't want to wait another day to ask you to take me deeper. I want to do that right now. This may be your moment to turn. This may be your moment to say, Lord, let's, let's cross over. And let me experience you in all your fullness. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for the call that you've placed upon our life to repent. Lord, repentance is the greatest gift you give us. It comes by grace, and you allow us to change our mind, to grow and to deepen our walk with you. I pray that we'd not be afraid of repentance, but that we would embrace it, that we would confess before you our um, complacency at times. And we'd ask you, God, to fill us and to, to, to use us and to take us from the toddler room into adulthood, that we might serve you. And I pray that the world would see a difference because of that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, guys, we're gonna stand and sing one other song to Jesus, uh